0: United States Institute of Peace, along with Sirius XM's POTUS Channel 124, now present their weekly podcast. We have seen over the last 10 years, as we sort of reassess where we are at the end of this decade, the rise of things like, for example, the Arab Spring. And more recently, we've seen protests in Hong Kong, for example, more protests in India. The question is whether or not there are some givens about demonstrations and protest movements. Well, our next guest, along with her colleague, Adam Gallagher, Maria Stefan has put together a list of myths about protest movements. Maria is the United States Institute of Peace Director of Nonviolent Action, tweeting at Maria J. Stephan, S-T-E-P-H-A-N. Maria Stephan, welcome. Thank you for being on POTUS today.
1: Good morning, Tim. Thanks for having me on. Let's see if we can get through these.
0: Uh, uh, Myth number one, social media, you wrote, has made popular movements more effective. That's a myth.
1: Yeah, well, social media has definitely contributed to the explosion of protests that we've seen around the world, certainly this past year. You know, Lebanon, Iraq, Sudan, Algeria, Chile, Hong Kong, Colombia. Um, you know, there's been a, a resurgence of protests happening around the world. And, you know, what Facebook and Twitter um, provide is fast communication. People can access information easier. So protest and getting out into the streets has become a lot easier. Um, but we're making the argument that that has not necessarily translated into more effective movements, uh, which, as we know, require lots of of organization, uh, relationship building, trust building, leadership. And these are these are qualities and attributes that social media um, don't always support. Yeah,
0: we, we've seen that before. People think by sending a tweet or a hashtag that all of a sudden they've done their part and it doesn't usually turn out that way, right?
1: That's right. That's right. Yeah. No, movements um, are based on people and large collective action and um, structures and organizations. You look at uh, the protests in Sudan that ultimately led to the ouster of the 30-year dictator Omar Bashir. This was a movement that faced uh, mass brutal repression by state and non-state forces, security forces. And it was able to survive because it had such an extensive network of grassroots uh, organizations, neighborhood committees, professional associations who provided kind of the the grassroots backbone for the movement that allowed it to remain resilient.
0: On myth number two, you quote the economist saying that violent protest is actually more effective. The Chronicle of Higher Education in 2013 had Benjamin Ginsburg writing, those willing to use violence to achieve their goals will generally overcome their less bellicose adversaries. But your myth is that nonviolent resistance is useless against certain foes. Explain.
1: Yeah, there's often the um, you know perception that non-violence or nonviolent action can only work against more benign opponents or in democratic context or but in places where the government's cracked down heavily brutally with with violence that it's um, it's hard to win with nonviolent action and in fact the research um, including some research that I've conducted with a colleague Erica Chenoweth has found that nonviolent resistance has often emerged and succeeded in places where we would think it would fail so we looked at around just over 300 and 30 major violent and nonviolent campaigns um, over the past century, and uh, were able to conclude that the nonviolent campaigns that relied on primarily nonviolent tactics, boycotts, strikes, sit-ins, civil disobedience, protests, and the like, were twice as effective as the armed movements facing the same opponents. So nonviolent resistance can prevail even against uh, these very difficult uh, opponents.
0: Maria Stefano, United States Institute of Peace Director of Nonviolent Action with us discussing the five myths about protest movements. Myth number three, nonviolent movements require charismatic leaders. We do tend to think of people and associate them with movements, as you point out in the piece, like the lesson in Poland, for example, but that's a myth, you say.
1: Well, certainly when we think of the iconic uh, nonviolent struggles historically, uh, Mahatma Gandhi and the Indian independence movement, Martin Luther King's civil rights movement, um, you know, they they are they play outsized roles in these movements. Um, but, but movements don't rely on single leaders, and, and single leaders and charismatic leaders bring a lot of risk with them. Over-reliance on single leaders can kind of undermine um, the power of a movement. Um, if those leaders get arrested or detained or the like, that can kind of of, um, you know, um, undermine the movement, its ability to go forward. Um, Leadership matters, though. And and what we're seeing today in places like Chile and Sudan and Hong Kong is that these movements are very leaderful, let's say. So they've got a lot of leaders taking action in decentralized networks. And so the important thing is that there's leadership structures and people are able to take decisions and actions. But movements are able to, you know, survive, endure through these decentralized leaderful Uh, structures um, in a way that you know may challenge the prevailing assumptions about why movements succeed
0: let's get to myth number four and i was thinking specifically of hong kong in this case the myth is that popular movements are all about street demonstrations we've seen a lot of that in hong kong but it doesn't appear clear at this point that this is going to result in changes talk about that myth
1: yeah, street protests. I mean, they're are a you know a really important, powerful tactic of nonviolent resistance. Getting out into the streets, challenging authority, being visible allows people to see that other people are dissenting and kind of join. So protests are important, but we know that protests are also vulnerable to repression. Bringing large numbers of people together um, can make them you know vulnerable to state violence. And you know, movements succeed when they involve lots of different types of tactics that can involve different types of People uh, that have varying risk levels, different skills and abilities. And so, you know, you think of some of the most powerful nonviolent tactics out there, and there are thousands, by the way, it's very hard to exhaust the nonviolent arsenal. But you think of some of the most powerful tactics, consumer boycotts, labor strikes. Um, and these are, you know, these don't involve confrontations with security forces, these involve people you know, refusing to obey, not cooperating, withholding their pain power. These are all like really powerful tactics in nonviolent movements. So over-reliance on single tactics is usually a bad thing for movements. Being able to alternate and bring in these different methods of dissent makes movements more resilient to repression um, and helps get a lot of more people involved.
0: Maria Stefan with the United States Institute of Peace. She is director of nonviolent action. Let's talk about myth number five. Protesters are fighting for progressive goals sometimes, but this is certainly not an exclusive goal for protesters, I guess.
1: That's true. I mean, the, 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 you know, the predominant image is, you Know of young people out in the streets fighting against uh, dictatorship, authoritarianism, and there are lots of, and I probably the vast majority of protests involve folks out there fighting for social justice issues. But we know that, you know, other people have discovered nonviolent tactics and civil resistance uh, methods. And, you know, nativists, chauvinists, white supremacists, we've seen a lot of far right rallies um, in Europe, in Germany, in Poland, in this country. So people are using the marches, the demonstrations, the sit-ins, uh, the boycotts, all of these uh, tactics can really be used for so-called good or bad goals. Um, so, yeah, this is not a, a method of resistance that it, that is exclusive to one type of people.
0: Is there anything, as we've now covered those five myths, is there anything that typifies, if you will, a successful nonviolent movement? Is it a lot of things combined? Is it social media and street protests and action behind the scenes and a charismatic leader? I mean, a combination of any or all of those?
1: I would say the most defining variable of successful nonviolent movements is the um, large, diverse, and sustained participation. So mass movements have lots of people from different segments of society. Youth tend to be in the forefront, um, as we've seen in places around the world. But when they're joined by religious leaders, women, um, elderly, uh, disabled. So movements are bringing lots of different people um, who have, you know, different uh, sources of power, skills and the like that are able to sustain their participation over time. So this is where the organization comes in. It's not just about one mass street rally or demonstration or one click or tweet, as you say. So it's about the ability to keep people organized um, to sustain their participation over time. I would also say being able to integrate different uh, tactics. So, you know, the the boycotts, the strikes, the sit-ins, to the silent protests. So not everything has to be loud and boisterous and the like. So being able to kind of mix it up tactically, um, uh, but the large, sustained, diverse participation is really, really key for successful movements.
0: We will leave it there, but for people who want to refer to the piece, it's the five minutes about protest movements. You can find it in the Washington Post. Maria, thank you for joining us on POTUS today. Thanks very much. Maria J. Stefan, along with Adam Gallagher, penning that piece that is in the Washington Post. Maria is the United States Institute of Peace Director of Nonviolent Action, and joining us here on POTUS, tweeting at Maria J. Stefan. Maria J. S-T-E-P-H-A-N.